Well, it has been a long time, brothers and sisters, since we have been enjoying the teaching from First Peter, and I'd like to invite you to turn there. We have been away for what seems to me to be far too long to be instructed from this wonderful first letter of Peter. I gave you a couple of weeks ago a helicopter view of the theme of suffering from First Peter, and we find ourselves at the beginning of the section which is that theme of suffering, First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read the entire context of this particular topic of suffering, and then we'll focus for our time together this morning on verses 13 to 17 of 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3.13 says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water." Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. Therefore, since Christ also suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God." The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, 
so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This, of course, is that theme of suffering all the way through virtually every verse that I've read. And this first portion of this theme on suffering, according to the will of God, means that we as Christians will suffer. And in order to understand the concepts associated with Christian suffering, especially as it relates here in First Peter... I want you to look at verses 13 to 17, and I want you to see the keys to the endurance of any suffering we may undergo, because the suffering that we may undergo in this life is properly understood only when we understand the concept of fear, fear. That's a very, very important understanding in verses 13 to 17 that sets us now with a foundational understanding of all Christian suffering, fear. I don't want to be simplistic about this, but I believe that the Bible, generally speaking, speaks of three kinds of fear. Now, yes, it is true that the Bible speaks with a negative command, do not fear, and it may be that that negative command, do not fear, is the most oft-repeated negative command in the Bible. Don't fear. Fear not. But it seems that in the nature of man, all men born of women, that there are generally three kinds of fear that grip human beings. And I want you to understand this because this will unfold for us the key component in understanding how it is that you can glorify God, enjoy God, rejoice in God, even or especially in the midst of suffering. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 29. And I want to show you that first area that we could call a major fear area in our lives. Now, of course, it is true that some of these statements that we'll talk about are in contexts that speak about man in general, not simply the saved man, but man in general. And it could very well be that as a general proverb, this is true, as I said, a major idea about Fear in general. Proverbs 29, 25. Listen to this very carefully. The fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Need I tell us that one of the major gripping fears in all the spheres of life is the fear of man. 
The fear of what man thinks about me. The fear of what man may do as a result of something that I do or something that I am. This is a proverbial generality that says that if you fear man more than you fear God, there's going to be an ensnaring in your life. You're going to be trapped because you're going to be more concerned about what man thinks than what God thinks. Of course, the reverse is, but if you trust in the Lord, you'll be exalted. You see the opposites? Ensnaring exaltation. Fear of man, trust in the Lord. Those are simple opposites. And yet, how many times do all of us, myself included, come to the place where we make our decisions in life, even in the Christian life, not based on the fear of God, but based upon the fear of what? Man. The fear of man. What will they think of me? What will they perceive about me? What will they do in response to what I say or do? The fear of man is a very gripping fear. And I also want you to look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews, chapter 2. This also talks about a kind of fear. And even goes more than just a general statement about the fear of man bringing a snare. This talks about the universal problem of a kind of fear. And in Hebrews, chapter 2, Verse 14, the Bible says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise also partook of the same. He became a man. He took on flesh and blood. That through death he, Christ, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Isn't that interesting? It says that the devil has the power of death. And Jesus came so that he might render powerless the devil who has the power of death. And then verse 15, and that Jesus might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Do you know that generally speaking, people not only have a fear of man, but they have a fear of death. Fear of death. Fear of dying. How many people today want to remain young, want to look young, want to do all that they can with treatments and potions and all kinds of things, whether it's medicine or religions or whatever it may be, the fountain of youth, wherever it can be found, because people have a fear of dying. And the Bible says right here to the writer to the Hebrews that people are enslaved all their lives long to the fear of death. And not just the fear of death. Look at 1 John chapter 4. Speaks of a third kind of general fear in this life. 1 John chapter 4. This maybe is on the very heels of a concept like the fear of death. It is not simply the fear of death that people undergo, that people experience all their life long, but the attendant fear, as John puts it in 1 John chapter 4 verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, excuse me, chapter 4 verse 16, I read the wrong chapter. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in the world. And then notice verse 18. There is no fear in love. There's no fear in the love that God has for us. We abide in His love. God abides in us. We have confidence in He says at the day of judgment, because God loves us, there is no fear in love. Did you hear that song, He is all you need? God loves you so. Perfect love, John says, the apostle casts out fear, 
Because why? Because fear involves punishment. You see, it's not just that people fear man in this life, and it's not just that people fear death at the end of life, they also fear what's coming at the end of death, and that is punishment, judgment. But for believers in Jesus Christ, perfect love casts out fear. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. And we love because He first loved us. You see, there's a gripping There's a gripping fear that we experience coming out of the womb. And this fear is a fear of man, it's a fear of death, and it's a fear of judgment. And beloved, until we understand that the fear of the Lord, which the great wisdom literature of the Old Testament says, is the very beginning of wisdom, unless we understand that the fear of the Lord is to be chosen over these other kinds of fears, we will not understand Christian suffering. We won't. We may endure Christian suffering. We may undergo, even perhaps for a long period of time, Christian suffering, but we will not be responding to Christian suffering. We will not be embracing Christian suffering until we realize that those three generic kinds of fears are not to be like, compared to, chosen as over against the fear of the Lord. Because when we understand the fear of the Lord, we can understand and endure and embrace anything. Including suffering. Now in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 to 17, Peter gives us, with that kind of understanding, that kind of background in our minds, three principles for suffering, Christian suffering, according to the will of God. And if I choose the fear of the Lord as over against the fear of man, as over against the fear of death, as over against the fear of suffering, I'm going to prosper in my Christian life, even or especially in the midst of Christian suffering. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. It's an opportunity to grow by God's will, by His purposes, and by His plans. And He gives us three principles which are going to guide us So that if we experience intense suffering, especially persecution kind of suffering for our faith, we will embrace it. It will be a good thing. We'll see the plan of God and God will be with us every step of the way and we will then grow and flourish and we'll be set apart to holiness in such a more emphatic and wonderful way that we will not want to reject what God is bringing to us. We will not want to question what God is bringing to us. We will embrace these things as we experience them. Let me give you the first one. Number one, the first principle. It's contained for us in verses 13 and 14, and it is this. Do not become intimidated by what man can do to us. I put it in the corporate sense because, of course, Peter is he's speaking, he's preaching, he's writing to us. To the corporate body of Christ. And of course, he had a primary set of hearers, those who originally heard and were receiving this letter, but it's for us as well by secondary application. And he says to us, do not become intimidated by what man can do. Listen to what he says again in verses 13 and 14 of 1 Peter 3. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. You remember that Peter has just taught his hearers, his readers, the general principle in the Christian life, according to verse 12, that the eyes and ears of the Lord are very sensitive to the needs of His people. Do you see that there in verse 12 of 1 Peter 3? For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. The Lord knows what we're going through. His eyes, the Bible says, not literal eyes, of course, the mind of God, the concern of God, the providence of God, 
the nature of God. He is by nature concerned for the righteous. And His eyes are toward us. That means He's inclined toward us. And His ears attend to their prayer. God is ever the listening ear to His people. He's for us. And notice what else it says in verse 12. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The Lord has set Himself against those who do evil, especially in this context, even the evil of what evil men do against the righteous by causing them to suffer, by persecuting them. You see, He will take care of His people. His face is toward us. His face is not toward those who do evil. In other words, you needn't fear those around you because the Lord, your Lord and Savior, will regard your prayers as important and will be attentive to your needs and will also be against those evil men who are against you. You needn't have any fear of man because the Lord is on your side. That's not encouraging to you, is it? Is that encouraging to you? No, no matter what any man can do to you, even in the most intense form of suffering, of persecution. And now in verse 13 he says, And besides, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous to what is good? It's almost as though he's saying, Look, the, the Lord's face is toward you. His eyes are upon you. His ears are attentive to your prayers. And if, if people who are doing evil, evil at their core, are trying to slander you and revile you, who really, in that sense, who really is going to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? The Lord knows what's going on. Don't worry about what man can do if you're doing the right thing. You say, what's the right thing? That's what he says there. If you prove zealous for what is good. Do you know that that's not necessarily or needs to be a term of derision? Now we hear it. Oh, you religious, what? Zealot? I frankly take that as a badge of honor. You religious zealot. Well, in this sense, absolutely. I want to be zealous for what is what? Good. I want to be zealous for what is good. Because if that is the case with me, I show myself to be a Christian. And even if I come against someone who is evil, then I know who's on my side. Because the face of the Lord is against that person who is there to harm you. I mean, really, who is there to harm you? That's the sense of that text. Who, who is there who is going to come against you when the Lord is on your side? Does it have echoes of Romans 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the Lord gave us Jesus Christ, the greatest gift that we could be given, will He not with Him freely give us All things. He's going to give us everything that we need. We needn't fear. And the rhetorical question in Peter's mind is, who is there to harm you? I mean, really harm you if you prove zealous for what is good. And by the way, that word good, noble. Noble. Noble Christian. Religious zealots, in the biblical sense of the word, are noble Christians. Now, the world doesn't believe that. In fact... The very more noble you become, the the very zealousness that you continue to prove yourself, to experience, to desire in this life may in fact bring you some level of suffering, some level of persecution. But in one sense he says, who is there to harm you? You know what this may also mean based on the sense of the sentence in this Greek text? Conditionally. The answer rhetorically is, no one will harm you if you prove zealous for what is good. And someone, of course, might come right along and say, but but there are Christians who do what is good and they suffer. Yes, that's true. In some cases, in isolated cases, and it is, of course, becoming more intense in our world, but certainly in the United States of America, we aren't experiencing a measure of this, are we? I'm not suffering. I'm not being persecuted for my faith, at least not in the intense sense that Peter is saying to his readers and what they're undergoing. No one has a gun to my head. 
No one's lighting me up with flames. I'm not giving my life. I'm not suffered unto blood. It may be that the sense of this verse is that there is no harm that is going to come to a believer if they prove zealous for what is good. And you know what? It may be, again, one of those generalized statements. It's just generally true, Peter says, that if you prove zealous for what is good, no one will harm you. Why? Because a sovereign God is at work in order to protect you from harm. Generally speaking, and the way this sentence is set up is exactly that. You do what's right, God protects you. Now, will there be examples of the reverse? Yes, possibly. In some situations. It's certainly not true of us here. But generally speaking, if you do what is right, there will be no one to harm you. Now, this this is illustrated to me in a comical way because when you think of doing the right thing, you assume that when you do the right thing, you're going to sense a confidence. You're going to sense that everything is okay, right? And I've, I've experienced this many times, especially as my kids have gotten a little bit older and we'll be in our big 12-passenger blue van that everybody identifies the Quins with. We'll be driving down the road, and yes, some people have confused that with a church van, but it isn't true. In fact, one time when we were on the Breckenridge campus, we pulled up in the blue van to pick up the kids from school, and there was a young boy who just immediately bounded into the van and sat down, and he looked around, and he didn't recognize anybody from his family, and he said, is this the church bus? Is this the school bus? Where am I? And we said, no, this is our bus. And he got out of there real fast. We're driving along, and when we drive in that big van, what happens when I'm behind the wheel and I believe I'm doing the good, I believe I'm following the rules, and a policeman comes along? What do you automatically do? All the seatbelts on, right? You're looking around, everybody, everybody's just looking straight ahead like this is the way we always drive, Right? And all the kids are looking like this. Everybody looking around. Everybody seeing that everything is well. Why? Why do we do that? Because there's an authority right outside. And we want to make sure that we are following the speed limit. We want to make sure that we're following the traffic laws. We want to make sure we're doing all of those things. And yet, guess what? If you are proving zealous... To be in the habit of doing those very things, why are you in any sense, in the least bit concerned about a policeman outside your window? Well, because maybe you are not totally sure you're doing everything you should be doing. Or maybe you immediately come off the accelerator, right? You see, if you are proving zealous to that which is good, if you're following God's laws... If you're, in a sense, doing what His traffic laws are commanding you to do, who's there to harm you? In fact, what you could do, if you're following all the traffic laws, if you're doing all the things you can do, you're in the van, you're driving by, you can wave at Him, right? Well, good morning, officer. How are you? Things going well today? Good. Good. Have a nice day, right? And then, of course, you look back and hope the blue lights aren't coming after you. Why? Because you think maybe that you're doing something wrong. You think maybe you've done something you shouldn't do. But if you do what is right, if you're zealous, if you prove yourself zealous for good deeds, there's no harm to you. Oh, I love what David says about these things. Turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. This is a, this is a number of very wonderful psalms that you could write down when you think harm is going to befall you for doing the right thing, for obeying the laws, for responding rightly. You see, if you do do that, you don't have to fear. Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? You see, it's it's just like that. You're, You're driving down the highway of faith, and you're obeying the laws. You're doing what the Lord is asking you to do. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? 
When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Who is to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Look at chapter 34. This comes right out of the verse 12 of 1 Peter 3. The idea, Psalm 34 I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. See? Verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues them. Oh, fear the Lord, verse 9, you His saints. For those who fear Him, there is no want. Verse 11, come you children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Verse 16, remember that, or verse 15, remember the quotation out of 1 Peter 3.12? The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry. Remember? They cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Look at chapter 56 of the Psalms. Chapter 56. You could write these down. And, and if you have a struggling fear, a debilitating fear... Wondering if God is for you, wondering if God's going to protect you, Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me, fighting all day long. He oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? I love that. What, what can mere man do to me? Or even write down Psalm 118, verse 6. I mean, in the end, if I prove zealous for what is noble, who is there to harm me? Who, who is there to harm me? Well, what's, what's going to happen in my life? Oh, yes, there may be a season of testing. Yes, there may be a season of suffering. Yes, there may be those things. But in the main, in the whole, I put my confidence in Jesus Christ. I have no worries. The Lord will take care of me. I prove zealous for what is good. But look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. But, but even... If you should suffer, it's almost like Peter saying, look, you're not going to be harmed if you prove zealous for what is good. That's the general statement of the Christian life. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, see, you're proving zealous for what is good. You're living for righteousness sake. It is for the sake of righteousness. It's not for the sake of self-protection. It's not for the sake of self-aggrandizement. It's for the sake of righteousness. And even if you should suffer that way, you are what? Blessed. Blessed. You say, blessed? How about get me out of it? How about, I don't want this. How about, where's the escape hatch? Where's the shepherd's crook around my neck to take me off stage left? No, if you should suffer, if that should come into your life, if persecution, and I think that's generally what he's saying, at least in this section, it's persecution kind of suffering, you're blessed. You're blessed. The general principle, no harm will befall you, verse 13. That is, by and large, you do what is right, you'll be okay, but there may be times when even what you do that is noble, you'll suffer persecution. And here he quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. We might do well to look at that. Isaiah chapter 8, it might be very good for us because obviously the Apostle Peter has done what he could to immerse himself as a Jew into the Old Testament. And he borrows so liberally from it. He's he's such a wonderful brother for us. He's encouraging us to know the Old Testament. 
to make it our study point so wonderfully to Christ. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, the believing remnant of the Jews, Israel, they were coming up against persecution. Verse 11, For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me, that is Isaiah, not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy. In regard to all this, the people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. You see why Peter would want to borrow that? Don't fear. Don't dread. Why? Verse 13, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He's perfect. He's sinless. He's in charge. He'll be your guide, your promise. And He shall be your fear. And He shall be your dread. You say dread? Yes, dread. Remember when we did the study of the fear of the Lord and we said there are two aspects of the fear of the Lord? A holy reverence for God, who He is, holy, set apart, sinless, perfect. But there's also a healthy dread of God. He is the one for whom we must give account of our lives, even as believers. There's a healthy dread of God because He's so holy unlike we are. But if you fear Him principally, most notably in your life, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, but you fear God more than you fear man, more than you fear death, more than you fear judgment, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed. That's what it says. You are blessed. You're in a state of being blessed continually by God. That's a statement of fact, folks. You're going to be blessed. And maybe on the negative side, since that's positive, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. That's how we derive our principle. Don't be intimidated. For what can man do to us? He quotes right out of Isaiah. Don't fear their fear or intimidation. Do not be troubled. Oh, I love the fact that Paul lived this out. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, verse 10, You followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. <laughs> out of them all. Not just some of them, out of them all the Lord rescued me. He delivered me. He even says in chapter 4, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. You said, now wait a minute, I thought you said if you prove zealous for what is good, you'll not be harmed. Well, Paul was a gospel preacher. He was one of the apostles. There was an intense time of agitation because of his word about Christ. Just read the book of Acts, you'll see the intense persecution that was going on. That was a time in which that was hot and heavy. And he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. And then he says this, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Well, it could be true that men around me have deserted me. Yes, verse 17, but the Lord stood with me. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. You know what that means? The Lord had a will. The Lord had a purpose. And He wasn't going to leave Paul in the lurch because there was a gospel proclamation to undergo. There was a gospel call to remain to be preached. That's why Jesus said to His own disciples in John 14, Don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. When I go, I will send whom? The Holy Spirit. Even though you see me go up into the clouds and ascend to my Father, I will send you the Holy Spirit who will be with you to encourage you, to bring into remembrance all that I said to you. That is so that they, that, that is the apostles, could write the New Testament just as faithfully as God wanted them to. He gives them a promise. I'll be with you, men. 
I've, I've gone to prepare a place for you. It has many rooms. And when I come back, I'll accomplish all of the things, including losing none of you. Don't be troubled. I know in this world you'll have tribulation, but be a good cheer. I have what? I've overcome the world. Nothing you can experience. No harm that could be done to you. Boy, what an encouragement. Don't be intimidated by what man can do. Secondly, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of your suffering, know this. Sanctify and testify of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Sanctify and testify to yourself of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter saying, right in the midst of the suffering that you're going to experience, right in the vortex of the great suffering, remember that you're to set apart. That means that you're to take to yourself a person that you are going to see as special, as a possession of God, someone holy, someone set apart, someone sanctified. And who is it? Jesus Christ Himself. Sanctify, set apart Christ in what way? As Lord. Where? In your hearts. In your hearts. That's what you're all about. Remember Isaiah 8? He says, remember that the Lord is holy. Regard the Lord who is holy. And guess what? Peter interprets Isaiah 8 as referring none other than to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's an implicit testimony of the deity of Jesus Christ. Because in Isaiah 8, it's referring to Jehovah. In 1 Peter 3, he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. You see Christ as holy. And then he says, always being ready to make a defense. Apologia. Apologia. It's a defense of the faith. That's where we get the word apologetics. Defense. The defense of the faith. Look at it. You are ready always because you've made Jesus Christ as the set-apart one, the sanctified one, Lord in your hearts. And now you can make a defense, even in the midst of intense persecution. You know, it is real easy to proclaim Jesus Christ when no one's throwing rocks at you. It's real easy to testify about Jesus Christ that He's the separate one, that He's the Holy One, when no one's firing the bullets. But can you see what Peter's saying? When the, when the persecution is intense, when you are about to lose your head, literally, proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Do you know that's exactly what happened in the waters of baptism this morning? I proclaim to you that Jesus Christ is Lord. You say, well, didn't seem that significant, didn't seem that bold, didn't seem that important. Oh, it may have been important for him. Guess what? If you were living at this time and Peter were saying to you, sanctify Jesus Christ as Lord in your hearts, and you were down at the river, and there were people standing around who as soon as you came out of the waters of baptism would take you away and throw you in jail or cut off your head, I think that would be pretty significant, right? Pretty important. Because that's exactly what happened. People who publicly proclaimed their faith in Jesus Christ, in some cases, were signing their death warrant. I proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, not Caesar. Then you die. So be it. Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you, do you give allegiance to Caesar? No, I give allegiance to Jesus Christ. Then you die. So be it. I will die like my Lord. You see, that's a way to make a defense of your faith. That's a way to make a defense of your faith. To be willing to die for it. Uh, to be willing to say that justification is by grace alone. 
in Christ alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone, through the Word of God alone. You see, if you allow the fear of man and what man can do, you'll not sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. It goes right back to what Jesus said in Matthew 10.28. Don't fear Him who can destroy the body. Anybody can do that. There's a mob of people and they can take the people who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and they can kill the body. Jesus said, fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Only God can do that. Only God has the power to do that. Someone can snuff your life out. But only God can send your soul to hell. And that's what Peter's saying. Will you defend Christianity to your detractors? I ask you that this morning. Will you speak a word of testimony about Jesus Christ being the Lord of your life to those who are asking you to give an account for the hope that is in you? It seems to me that there are multitudes of Christians who go around not wanting to give a testimony of their hope in Jesus Christ. And it seems as though maybe they're involved with the fear of man more than they're involved with the fear of the Lord. Do you have any hope within you? Is this your hope? Is this your hope for heaven? Is this your hope for eternity? Well, if you're under intense suffering and persecution, it better be. It better be, because if that's not your hope, beloved, you will cower. You will compromise. You will recant. That's why I love people like Luther, who said, I cannot, I will not recant. God help me. I can do no other. And as I said, we... In our country, we know very little of this. Nobody's on the firing squad for the faith. But it may come to that. It may very well come to that. Listen to the words of Edmund Clowney. Churches today that experience little persecution need Peter's instruction. In a future nearer than they suppose they may find themselves suffering with the rest of Christ's afflicted church in the world. Peter would prepare the church not simply to endure persecution but to find in persecution an opportunity for witness. Both the boldness and the humility needed for witness come about through a fundamental exchange. And what does he say that fundamental exchange is? Christians must exchange the fear of men for the fear of the Lord. He's right. i got to make that great exchange. I have to fear God more than I fear man. He says, to break the throttling grip of fear, we must confess God's lordship with more than mental assent. We must confess it with our heart's devotion. Setting Him apart as Lord means bowing before Him in the adoration of praise. And then I love this. A praising heart is immune to the fear of other people. A praising heart. That's the only way to explain these martyrs who are tied to these posts and then they and their Bibles are thrown on the heap and when they are lit aflame, they sing praises to God. Praise God. I'm headed for glory. Isn't that what Stephen said? Oh Lord, oh Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. I see you, Jesus. How could he do that? Why didn't he have bitterness? Why didn't he have anger? Why didn't he say, stop, I recant? Couldn't. Clowney says, fear of another sort takes possession of our hearts and minds. A fear that does not flee in terror, but draws near in awe and worship. Awe and worship. That's the fear of the Lord. Oh, God, you're my... You're my Savior. You're my Deliverer. No matter what happens here, what can man do to me? You see, you can have both a reactive response. 
Don't be fearful. Don't be intimidated. You can have a proactive response. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a, an apology for the faith. And then third principle and last as we close. Make sure that your persecution stems from your good, need, your good deeds and not from your evil ones. Make sure that your persecution stems from your good deeds and not from evil ones. Look at verse 16. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You see the principle there? And keep a good conscience, he says. Good conscience. Sinaitis a good conscience. A noble conscience. A right conscience. A conscience that says I'm right with God. A conscience, like Paul says in Acts 24, I always endeavor to maintain a blameless conscience both before God and man. I'm, I'm driving down the road and I don't have to fear any authority. In fact, I embrace the authority. I say, Mr. Policeman... Mr. Government, mom and dad, boss, I welcome your input. I welcome your authority. I appreciate your discipline. I embrace it because I'm endeavoring to keep a good conscience. And not only a conscience, it's not only what's in your mind. Notice what he says. And those who slander you and those who revile your good behavior in Christ. So it's a good conscience and it's a good behavior. It's not just what you think. It's also what you do in your life. It's not just what you pursue mentally, intellectually, spiritually. It's what happens in the daily patterns of your life. And what does Peter say will happen? They'll slander you. That's why I think, by the way, it's this persecution kind of suffering. Because they're talking bad about you. They're slandering you, it says. They're reviling you. They're hurling their taunts at you. But if you have a good conscience and if you have a good behavior in Christ, they'll be put to shame. They'll be put to shame. For it is better, he says, if God should will it so... That you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Yet, some people may suffer. And they may suffer with the name Christian. And they may suffer with the name Christian for what appears to be legitimate persecution and suffering. But in the final analysis, it's a suffering because they're doing what's wrong, not what's right. Did you hear what I read in chapter 4? If anyone... Suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but it's to glorify God in this name. You embrace that, you see? But he says, make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Why did he have to put that one in there? You know, murder, thievery, all of that, but a meddler? Someone who's meddling in other people's affairs? We could add other lists, swindlers, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals. We could say all of those things and we could say, if anyone's suffering and they're manifesting those characteristics, they're a suffering not for the name of Christ. But if you suffer for the very name of Christ, little one, Christian, that's what that means, you're going to be okay. And in some cases, God will even use you to put detractors to shame. Oh, praise God, what an opportunity to, to have God exalted and have somebody else shamed. Now, it's not for the sake of shaming them. It's for the sake of their own lives, by contrast with yours, exposed. And God catches them up short and they say to you, I'm undone. Help me. Pray with me. Talk to me about Christ. Talk to me about the way you're living. I can't not do these things. You seem to be able to say no to those things. How do you do it? You say, well, I try to have a good conscience. I try to have good behavior. But under no circumstances are you to suffer in the purpose and plan of God for doing wrong rather than doing right. Boy, these are, these are 
absolutely fundamental principles, aren't they? To endure suffering. Let's bow our heads together. As you do, I want you to do maybe a little inventory of your life. Have I been slandered? Reviled by others? And if so, how do I assess such slanders and revilings? Is it because I've really done evil? It may even be that I've done evil and someone has, as a non-Christian, caught me up short and said, I thought you said you were a Christian. Christians involved in themselves in these practices? You see, you can lay no claim to the term Christian if you live a pattern of life that says Christ is not being set apart in my heart as Lord. Do you see these principles as fundamental to your Christianity? You must if you will ultimately, or even now, undergo persecution, slander, reviling, suffering of some sort. Could be that you are struggling even today with besetting sins for which you know are displeasing to the Lord. And they may even those patterns bring shame upon the name of Christ. Confess those to the Lord. Ask Him to put those things by His Spirit away from your life. Ask Him to allow you to suffer if God should will it so by righteous behavior, a good conscience, and not evil. Ask the Lord to do that. Do you have what appear to be debilitating fears? Do you fear what people think of you, the clothes you wear, the car you drive, the house you live in, the job you have, the person you're married to, the places you go? Do, do you fear what man can do to you? It may be that you fear death and judgment. Ask God to allow you to fear Him and Him alone. Maybe it's the case with you this morning that you have proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord in your hearts, but You've frankly not been living in such a way that that could be affirmed about you. Confess and ask Jesus Christ to be truly and genuinely as a pattern of your life the Lord of your heart. Father, I pray that each one of us who names the name of Christ, we say that we're Christians. 
that we would take these principles to our hearts. And if intense persecution, suffering, slander, reviling should come, and for some of us it may be here. It may be that you're in an unequally yoked marriage. It may be that you as a young person live with parents who are not believers. Or the reverse. Maybe that you're under intense scrutiny at work or school. Whatever the case, Lord, we pray that you would challenge each one of us to set Jesus Christ apart and then to testify that He is our defense. He is our apologetic. We have no other defense. But Lord, if we have Christ, what else do we need? He is all you need. May you be pleased with the study of your word and the proclamation of your truth. In Christ's name, amen.